good evening. Welcome. Oh, hang on. Let me get it with my... There we go. It stayed on this morning, and I know what's happening now. Anyway, we'll see how we go. Hello, uh, Richard is my name. If you haven't met before, um, uh, Spally has introduced me a little, uh, but uh, I'm the uh, Youth and Young Adults Minister here at uh, Christchurch Inner West, uh, and uh, as Spally mentioned, normally I, I spend my Sundays over at St. John's in Ashfield, um, but I hang out with a bunch of you on Friday nights uh, at uh, the Attic Youth Group, uh, and so it's great to be along here uh, tonight and uh, see you in person on a Sunday and get to open up God's Word uh, together with you. Uh, and to meet some of you as well, who I, uh, often, uh, I often know about lots of you by name and reputation uh, from those uh, who I do know. And to actually uh, see some of you and meet some of you in person was pretty nice as well. Um, so it's a real pleasure to be here with you this evening. Uh, we're in this series at the moment looking through some psalms, particularly some psalms of praise. So tonight we're going to open up particularly uh, that first reading we had. Uh, that Jack read so well, short and sweet, uh, as he said. Uh, two verses, the shortest psalm in uh, the book of Psalms, the shortest chapter in the whole Bible, in fact. Um, but, uh, as we're going to see, it's got a lot to teach us about uh, God this evening, about what it looks like to praise Him, to worship Him, uh, to honour Him uh, for all His goodness to us. I'm going to start by reflecting a little bit on uh, the fact that uh, tonight is the end of NADOC week. Uh, a week, uh, an annual celebration of uh, the culture and achievements of our First Nations people here in Australia. Uh, not least among the achievements of our First Nations people, of course, is the simple fact of their survival. Uh, we live on lands that European settlers took by force from those who'd been given custodianship of this land uh, for many, many thousands of years before us. Uh, and uh, these lands we now call Australia uh, are lands with a shared history with our Indigenous people uh, that's full of all kinds of dispossession, uh, full of all kinds of uh, death, of murder, of the separation of families, of a woefully uneven distribution of resources, uh, the many great resources that are afforded by uh, the wealth of our nation together. Uh, Europeans arrived on these shores pretty certain, really, that they were kind of superior and more cultured uh, than the inhabitants of these lands, that they were entitled to take what they wanted, to use it as they saw fit. Uh, they believed, even if they didn't explicitly say this a lot of the time, although sometimes they did, they believed that they were bringing true knowledge, true light, real, genuine civilization to this uh, dark and backward land. But they arrived with the message, really, that to become better human beings was to become more European. Now, one of the things that European settlement brought with it, of course, to these shores uh, was, uh, indeed, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Christianity is woven into the tragic history that we share with our First Nations people in this land uh, in complex ways, both positive and negative. Uh, on the one hand, many First Nations people are people who have heard the good news of the Lord Jesus and put their trust in Him. According to the last federal uh, census, 55% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, claim Christian faith. Uh, I think that's really quite remarkable, uh, given the history that we share, uh, because uh, even those who brought the gospel to these shores sometimes were people who thought that to be a follower of Jesus meant to become more European as well. The complicated relationship between Christianity and the First Nations people of Australia is just one instance, really, of an objection that people often make to Christian faith. Uh, I don't know if you've heard people say this before. What gives you the right to say that your religion is the right one? to say, you should stop worshipping whatever you're worshipping and instead come and praise my God? What gives you the right to say that your religion is the only true one? That we should be more like you? That you should drop what, what you believe in and instead choose to believe what I believe in? 
Is it really just one more way of kind of colonial influence, just another way of the powerful saying to the vulnerable, you've got to live on my terms? Who are Christians to say to First Nations people, or for that matter to anyone, that your religion is false, that ours is true, that you should follow our God? With that history in mind, uh, think again and hear again the opening line of the psalm that we're looking at tonight. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, join me. All of you, no matter who you are, no matter what your cultural background, no matter your religious background, no matter your personality, no matter all the different things that make you particularly you, whoever you are, come and praise my God. This is the way to worship. This is the way to truly praise when you see it in this light, Psalm 117 actually becomes quite confronting. Now, this tiny little psalm is far bigger than it might seem at first glance on the surface. This cute little mantra of a psalm actually really packs a punch. Uh, in the end, of course, this is an invitation to a true and lasting peace, not an invitation to oppression, not an invitation to uniformity, to suppressing difference. It expresses actually the very heart of biblical theology, the very heart of the gospel itself, the invitation to come and find yourself in the Lord Jesus. But to see how wonderful that invitation actually is, first we need to see just how scandalous it is, just how shocking it is to say to the world around you, come and praise my God. And so we're going to take some time to unpack this psalm under three headings that you'll see here on the screen. Firstly, the scandal of praise. Secondly, the reason for praise. And thirdly, the practice of praise. So firstly, what is it that's so scandalous about telling people to praise the Lord? Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, the psalm begins. And the Lord, who we're being called to praise here, the Lord who the nations are being called to praise, uh, is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, this isn't a call to just kind of worship the divine spirit or spark in general not a call to worship some kind of generic idea of God, to have some kind of sense of transcendence within yourself. No, this is very specifically a call to worship the God who has revealed himself through the history and experience of the people of Israel. This God, Yahweh, this God alone, come and praise him. It's a specific uh, call to praise a specific God, and it's scandalous in the end in two ways. Um, firstly, it could just be seen as a little bit embarrassing. This is a scandal of embarrassment at this point. Israel were not a great empire. If you know the Old Testament story uh, in any detail whatsoever, you'll know that Israel uh, were always spending their time trying not to get overrun by the superpowers around them. They spent all their time being swept away by successive people, carried off in the end into exile, making all kinds of anxious alliances with the nations around them, trying not to get trampled over by bigger and better armies that lived around them. Given that, it's entirely possible that the nations around Israel would hear a call like this and kind of just laugh. Really? Come and praise your God? Okay, sure, I guess. That's a, that's a nice thought. Um, it's a little bit like this, I think, uh, which I think is probably the all-time greatest scene in the whole of the Avengers films. This is what's, what might go on, I think, in this circumstance. Enough! You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature. And I will 
It's actually probably the funniest moment in any any Avengers film, I think. Um, I wonder if this is a little bit how actually the nations around would see this kind of claim that Israel makes. Uh, here's Israel, Loki, in the you know in the Avengers thing. I'm a god. Come and worship me. Puny god, <laughs> they say, and come and just like beat Israel to a pulp again, as happened again and again in their history. It's kind of embarrassing to kind of turn around and say, "Come and worship my god." And you go, "Really, really? That's not all that impressive." Little old Israel says to the nations around to worship our God. They respond, ah, puny God, whatever. Just a little bit pathetic. On the other hand, though, this uh, is, uh, can be seen as a different kind of scandal too. Uh, if you like, as a violent scandal. Uh, the nations are spoken of a lot in the Psalms, but very rarely in a positive way. Uh, usually the nations in the Psalms are examples of rank godlessness. They're examples of evil people who are opposed to God and opposed to God's people who seek to suppress the knowledge of God and seek to crush his people. And so most of the references to the nations in the Psalms speak of the nations as enemies and call down curses on them and ask God to destroy them. And so what then do we make of the call in Psalm 117 to those same nations to actually come and worship Israel's God? Are they enemies to be destroyed or are they to come and join in Israel's worship? And so maybe actually what's going on here is that uh, Israel's uh, kind of invitation to praise their God is really just a kind of power play. It's really just saying, you know what, actually I'm going to try and, uh, and incorporate you into my way of being. You come and worship my God and then maybe you'll be a little bit more like us and that we'll be able to take some of our power back. Perhaps this is a bigoted and oppressive dismissal of other people's beliefs. You see, the scandalous nature of Israel's call to praise Yahweh as the one true and living God is uh, really uh, reflected in, in the same way in the call that Jesus makes, isn't it? Uh, Jesus uh, is one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the Apostle Peter in Acts 4, echoing Jesus, uh, proclaims that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given uh, by which mortals must be saved. It's this way or no other way. It's Jesus or nothing else. And so the scandalous nature of the, the call to praise you here in Psalm 117 is still one that we hear in our world today, still one that Christians give to the world around them, and it's still just as objectionable to many, many people. To claim that Jesus is the Lord and that following him is the only way to really enter into God's family and the life that God has created for human beings... To claim that is either, on the one hand, an embarrassingly childlike superstition or outright offensiveness and even danger to the fabric and good order of society. You may have experienced that from people around you in your workplaces. Or you may see that in the media. You may even know it in your own home, actually. It might be that even in your own home there are people who will say, you know what, if you're a Christian, either you're just a little bit silly or you're really actually just trying to indoctrinate me. Now, these kinds of uh, claims are often disparaged in our world as fundamentalism. It's a kind of bogey word in our culture. Uh, there's this exclusive claim that someone makes to know the truth of something, and that in and of itself must be wrong and evil and oppressive. Uh, it's a claim you hear a lot. Uh, fundamentalism leads to violence, really, is often what is said. 
Uh, Tim Keller, uh, who uh, you know and love at St. Albans as much as we know and love at St. John's, uh, he has some helpful things to say about this. Uh, He says, it's common to say that fundamentalism leads to violence, and yet all of us have fundamental, unprovable faith commitments that we think are superior to those of others. For example, he says, skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection itself is a religious belief. It assumes that God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. And all of these, too, are unprovable faith assumptions. See what he's getting at there? People might say, we don't like it when you say this is the only way, and yet actually even that objection itself is a fundamental belief that can't be proven. And so, Keller concludes, the real question then is, which fundamental beliefs will lead their believers to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they differ? Which set of unavoidably exclusive beliefs will lead us to humble, peace-loving behaviour? So the question this all raises for us in terms of this psalm, given the scandal of calling other nations to praise the God of Israel, to worship the Lord Jesus, the question this raises for us is, on what basis can we actually call people to do that? On what basis does the psalmist call people to praise his God? On what basis might we call people to praise the Lord Jesus? And is it a good one? Is it actually something that makes sense? Is it something that we think is going to lead to a better life? Is it something that actually people can get around that will actually make sense for them of this existence which we share together? Now, put another way, what's the reason for this praise? And so that's what we're going to unpack uh, in the next point here. Uh, one of our culture's favourite uh, buzzwords at the moment is inclusion. You heard the word inclusion around before? Um, it's uh, not a bad word, actually. Uh, don't get me wrong. Inclusion is a good thing. Uh, to be included means to be acknowledged, to be accepted as you are, to be made a part of something with other people. Uh, inclusion isn't a bad word. Everyone wants to be included. Everyone needs to be included, to be part of a community, to be part of families, to be part of friendship groups, of societies and cultures. It's something we're wired for, something we need. Uh, the Bible's on for that, I think, in all kinds of ways. Uh, the Bible thinks that it's important for people to be uh, upheld as members of communities, to be cared for and loved and uh, included in all kinds of ways. And yet inclusion, when you think about it, maybe it's just me, but it seems like a strangely clinical kind of word. Uh, inclusion's almost kind of corporate speak. It's the kind of language of policies and procedures. Government departments and schools have inclusion policies. Corporations have inclusion policies. There's strategies and indicators for making sure that different categories of people get to kind of function together and be represented. And if you tick all the right boxes, then inclusion has happened and people uh, get to be part of, uh, of whatever uh, group of people it is. Uh, the Bible's not opposed to this, uh, not opposed to uh, inclusion. God really cares about people uh, feeling acknowledged, being acknowledged, being accepted and being a part of, a, of uh, the whole. But the Bible has, I think, a better and warmer and deeper word and concept for this. Uh, what the Bible speaks of rather than inclusion is love. And that's the reason that the psalmist gives for his call to praise here. Psalm 117 again. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all you peoples. Why? For great is his steadfast love toward us, 
and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. What is it that might make this exclusive claim valid? What is it that might make the invitation to praise this God and no other a good and beautiful thing and not a moment of oppression and violence or sheer stupidity? What is it? It's his love. The psalmist describes God's love here as steadfast. That is, it's a love that can be trusted. You know in all kinds of ways in your own life how fickle love can be. You know it in the love that you express to others. You know it in the love that you receive. How good would it be if you could actually just trust all the time that all the people in your life who love you would be really great at that constantly? Wouldn't that be nice? If there was never any breakdown with your brothers and sisters, if there was never any issues between um, yourself and your parents, if your friends always got on exactly the way they were supposed to, if you never felt excluded from a friendship circle, if you got along with your colleagues all the time and just all thought and agreed on everything at every point and nothing ever kind of bubbled up to make work uh, a kind of difficult place to be. And of course, I'm sure for most of you, you wish that you could be like that to other people all the time too, right? That you didn't have bad days where you said things sometimes deliberately to hurt the people who you love the most. Wouldn't it be great if love was just steadfast all the time? That's what the psalmist says here. God is like. His love is steadfast. It can be trusted. It's a love that never changes. He tells us two other things about this steadfast love. Firstly, he tells us that it's great. Um, That might sound a little bit lame. Sometimes our English uh, translations uh, make things sound a little bit less exciting than they actually are because words can mean many different things and different things in different contexts, right? The psalmist isn't just saying, ah, God's love is steadfast. That's pretty cool. Nice. Great. Yeah, good. Good on you, God. Well done for being so steadfast. No, 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 no. The word great there in verse 2 is a a Hebrew word that actually is a military term. It means powerful. It means able to achieve. Uh, God's steadfast love isn't a feeble, weak, limp kind of love. Uh, God doesn't just have kind of warm feelings toward people. No, his love is powerful to actually be put into practical action, to achieve stuff for the people who he loves, to not only kind of just, you know, feel generally disposed positively toward them, but to go, I'm on for your good and I'm able to do it for you. God's steadfast love is great. It's powerful. Another translation of this psalm puts it like this, that God's love has taken over our lives that it's so powerful that everything in our life comes underneath that love of God, that steadfast love, so that he can achieve in us and for us all that he promises. So God's steadfast, trustworthy love is firstly great. Secondly, the psalmist tells us that his uh, powerful and trustworthy love uh, is paired with his faithfulness. A faithfulness, the psalmist says, that endures forever. Uh, In other words, God's love is completely constant and unchanging. That as much as the world and people change and dither and look different from one day to the next, that God remains the same. He never gets out of bed on the wrong side and loves you a little bit less or says a hurtful word. He's always faithful. And not only that, but in his faithfulness, he is always set on, what the, on the promises that he has made. He's promised to bless the world through Israel and then through the Lord Jesus. And he's faithful to that. He will do it. His loving purpose and action for his world will not be undone. (coughs) Uh, All of that could still be um, pretty 
abstract and uninspiring, really, couldn't it, in all kinds of ways. Uh, Except that God's steadfast, powerful, faithful, unchanging love has an object. It's not just a general disposition, it's got a focus. And that focus, the psalmist says, is us. For great is his steadfast love toward us. This is a, a personal love. This is not just a love for kind of you know, humanity in general or something like that. This is a love to be experienced personally by each one of us as persons from a God who is personal, who knows each of us individually, who can count the hairs on our head. This is not something abstract and intangible, but something real and true that you can experience in your life more and more as you draw closer and closer to the Lord Jesus. The us of the psalm, of course, is firstly Israel, uh, that special people who God had chosen for himself, who he gave the task of inviting the nations to join in praising him. God picked Israel, a little kind of nothing, backward nation, picked Abraham and said, I'm going to turn you into a huge nation, and your job will be to show the world what it looks like to really praise me, to really worship me. He picked Israel, he took them uh, out of uh, Abraham, and the God that's being called to praise here, the God who loves us, is a God whose love is seen in the story of those people. As they were taken from those tiny beginnings in Abraham, as they were rescued from slavery in Egypt, it's the story of how this God, Yahweh, refused to abandon them even when they turned their backs on him again and again and again. Israel's story is the proof to the world of the character of God's love, that he really is steadfast, that he really is faithful, that he really is powerful to achieve what he wants to for uh, the people who he set his heart on. The us of the psalm is first and foremost Israel, but of course the us of the psalm is broader than that too. The psalmist broadens it out beyond that. Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his faithful love toward us toward all peoples, toward all nations. Because God's promise to Abraham was not just to make Israel a great nation out of him, was not just to make them a sign to the world, was that, was, was that through, through him and them all the world would be blessed. God, uh, the love of God for Israel is the model and sign of his love for all the nations of the world. How he's loved Israel is how he loves everyone. How can Israel be so bold as to call all the nations of the world to praise their God? Well, it's because there is no other God like him. There's no other God like this. There's no other God who's so committed to the human race through thick and thin, despite all of our attempts to put him off, that would actually keep doing it, keep going back, keep drawing them to himself. There's no other God whose power is devoted to our good, even at his own expense. There's no other God who's for us, like Israel's God has been for them and promises to be for the world. Uh, Jesus extends this uh, call that we hear in Psalm 117 uh, to the nations uh, after his resurrection to his disciples, the people who now follow Jesus, to go and do the same work. Uh, Matthew 28, he says, they're to go and make disciples of all nations. And then in uh, Revelation chapter 7 that we had read for us earlier on, we have a vision of where that call ends up at the Lord Jesus' return, of where all of this is headed. Now let me read it for you again. I'm going to read you a little bit more than we read earlier on too. Now after this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you're the one that knows. He said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the picture of where Psalm 117 is pointing. This is where that call to all nations to praise this God is pointing. This is the end result. A multitude from every nation, from every tribe, from every people and language praising God together. The nations of the earth have come together in this God. The promise that's held out here is not a promise of oppression and division, but a promise of unity in the praise of the one true and living God, a people at peace together. There are a couple of things to note about it. <coughs> Firstly, that as you read that passage in uh, Revelation 7, you see that unity is not the same as uniformity. You see, that, that multitude, as it's looked on, isn't just all people who look exactly the same. It's not as though by praising God together, they've all become exactly the same culture. They've taken on exactly the same characteristics. No, they're still recognizable as distinct nations, as distinct nationalities as different languages joining together in the praise and worship of the true and living God. Their unity hasn't come through actually oppressing their differences, but actually through bringing all those different things that make them who they are and turning those things together to the praise of the God who made them. And so what unites them isn't giving up the things that made them different in the first place, it's something else. And what is it that unites them? It's the blood of the Lamb in which they have been washed. You see, what these nations have found as they've come together is a love that is steadfast, a love that is faithful and true, that never changes. They've found in Jesus and supremely through his sacrifice on the cross that all the ways in which they might worry about being excluded, all the ways in which they might worry about the things that make them, them being crushed and put down, that actually Jesus is the one instead who's been crushed who's been excluded and through his blood being excluded from life itself to the point of death, he's made a way for them as themselves with all of their particularities that God has given them, those things that we celebrate and love uh, enjoying together in our differences, those things are turned together to the worship of the true and living God. Uh, here's a, an image that uh, illustrates this. This is from uh, <coughs> uh, an Australian Aboriginal Christian artist named uh, Glennie Maiden. 
Um, this uh, picture here is actually inspired by uh, a different part of the Bible uh, in John 3.16, a verse that many of you all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that all believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, this is her depiction here of what that looks like for different nations. Uh, you see uh, the kind of semi-circles there, the kind of half donut shapes, they represent people. And she's deliberately painted them in all kinds of different colours. And what is it they're gathered around? They're gathered around the cross of the Lord Jesus. This is what's brought all these different people together, in unity together, to pray for the nations coming together to worship this God who has shown them unbelievable love in the Lord Jesus. As we noted uh, earlier on, the first nations, peoples of Australia are among those who've heard this call, who've joined the praise of the Lamb. Uh, They are nations who are represented around the throne in that vision of Revelation 7. One of the ways in which European settlement has done enormous harm to our First Nations people is in the destruction of indigenous languages. Many, many languages were spoken, thousands of them across the continent that we now call Australia, before European settlement. Very few of them remain. Uh, However, in God's kindness, one of the blessings of the gospel coming to this land has been the preservation of many of those languages, uh, especially through the work of missionaries in translating the Bible. For all their faults, for all the ways in which Christianity uh, has been misused in Australia to, uh, to abuse and oppress in all kinds of ways, uh, missionaries wanted uh, Indigenous uh, First Nations people to hear the gospel, to hear it in their own language. And so they started writing down the languages that they heard. They started learning the languages of the locals around them so that they could express the good news of the Lord Jesus to them. Uh, I want to share with you one story from a missionary uh, who worked to translate the Bible into uh, a language group uh, known as Wubui, uh, the language of uh, a, a tribe from Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory in the 1940s. Uh, and uh, here's a story from him as he began to read for the first time the Gospel of Mark in the Wubui language uh, and uh, have uh, the locals here. <coughs> At the campfire one night, listening intently, was Mari, a powerful elder. After the second reading, he got up from the fire and left. No one knew why, but he had set off to walk back to his own country 300 kilometres to the north. There, Marty and uh, other men made a little fleet of dug-out canoes, and in them, Marty brought 60 of his own people back down the coast and up the Roper River. The journey took them two weeks, living on fish and turtles and water lilies. And so it was that one night, as I was reading some of the last chapters of Mark's Gospel by the campfire, I glimpsed Marty in the firelight, standing just behind the eager listeners. I held up my handwritten sheets of paper. Anambalam anulahu, I said, the good story. You why? Matty replied, yes, it is true. Then 60 of his people emerged from the shadows to crowd around the fire. Marty had brought them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. God's spirit felt close to us that evening. I read it and read it again, urged on by the listeners over and over, long into the night. When at last my voice started to give out, they let me stop. Marty came forward and asked to hold in his hand these sheets of paper that I had written on. I knew he couldn't read, but he wanted to hold them nonetheless. You why, he said again, it is true. He tried to speak, but I didn't understand. My woo-woo is not good enough for such deep thoughts. And so he signaled to others to interpret for him. Through them, he told me that he once used to think that Jesus was the God only of the white man. 
but that now he understood that Jesus was also the God of the black man. I asked him which stories had impressed him, what had convinced him that the life of Jesus was true. He looked down at the sheets of paper and looked up at me again, his eyes bright in the firelight. It's not the stories, he said, it's the words. Now I know that Jesus speaks Woodley. Isn't that just amazing? He heard Jesus speak to him in his language. Now, not as a message of you need to come and be like me in order to actually follow my religion, but no, actually, Jesus has come to me to speak my language to me. Uh, Missionaries and translators uh, speak about, you might have heard this before, speak about heart languages, the language in which uh, you uh, grow up and are raised, the language in which you do most of your instinctive thinking, the language in which you uh, describe how you feel. Uh, Translators are are so often trying to actually translate into a heart language because people are best going to understand who Jesus is and what he means for them as they hear him speak in that language, as they can connect with him as deeply as possible. What the love of God means is that uh, as he comes to all nations seeking their praise, that just as Jesus speaks woodly, so also he speaks your heart language. Uh, I don't know if you know that. Uh, some of you might be here for the first time tonight. Uh, you might not, have, uh, might not know all that much about Jesus. Uh, I'm not here all the time, so I don't know who's new here and who's not, but that might be you this evening. What God wants for you is for you to hear Jesus in your own heart language. Uh, That might mean for you that you have particular longings, particular desires, particular fears that shape your life. And that's going to be true, actually, whether you're here the first time tonight or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. There are things that that make us us, right? For good and for bad. Things that we have in our own hearts that we long to have fulfilled. Things that we have in our own hearts that we wish weren't there. Jesus is speaking into that. He has a love that is big enough to embrace the whole of humanity. And as he went into the world to become one of us, to live among us and God in human flesh, as he came into our world, he was the one who was, rather than being included, I mean, who wouldn't want to include God? But Jesus instead was excluded. He was the one who was put on the outer, who didn't have any of the desires of his heart fulfilled, so that instead he might bring us in to include us, so that in that moment as he hung on the cross to die for us, we might see him speaking to us in our own heart language, that all the fears and desires of our own hearts are met in him. Another translation again of this psalm puts it like this, that God's kindness overwhelms us. And that's what will happen as you look to Jesus more and more, as you dwell in what it is that he's done in dying and giving himself for you, His kindness overwhelms us. And we hear him speak to our own hearts as well. That's what it means to praise this God, right? To praise the God whose love is steadfast and faithful. This is an invitation to actually find your heart's desires met, to find those uh, those difficult things in your heart changed. This is what it means to praise this God, not to lose yourself, but to find yourself in him just as the Wugui people did, just as so many Indigenous Australians have, just as so many different kinds of people in this room here tonight have as well. That's what it means to praise the Lord. And so what are we going to do about that in practice uh, as we come to a close? Uh, What does this mean for our praising together? Uh, Two things I think uh, that it means. 
which are, uh, I hope, are, are helpful for us as we seek to live this out, as we seek to praise God in our lives together. Uh, the first is that if, if this is really true, if you can say and sing this psalm, if you can praise God along with the nations, then you'll be someone who welcomes others. Uh, the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm in uh, Romans chapter 15. Uh, it's the culmination of his argument in that letter where he's been uh, at pains to say, God came to Israel first as his chosen people to use them for his glory in the world, through them to speak to the nations. And so, he says, to a group of Christians in Rome made up of people from the nations of Gentiles and of uh, Jewish converts to Christianity as well, you are to actually welcome each other. You're one family in this now. Uh, so here's what he says. And he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, that is, of Israel, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the fathers, and in order that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will confess you among the nations and sing praises to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people. And again, quoting Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples praise him. Now, what does Paul say in this part of his argument in Romans 15? He says, if that's true, if that's what God's been doing through Israel, if he's drawing all people to himself to worship him, to know and experience his love together, then you've got to welcome each other as the Lord Jesus has welcomed you. Uh, it might be that there are people, uh, even in this room tonight, who you're at church with, who you go, mm, they're a little bit difficult. It'd be kind of nice if they actually weren't, weren't you know, really here. You know? But hey, if this is for all people, in all of their particularity, in all of their difference, then your job is to welcome as you've been welcomed by Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller, again, uh, says this, I think it's really helpful. He says, religion can certainly be one of the major threats to world peace. However, within Christianity, there are rich resources that can make its followers agents for peace on earth. Because at the very heart of the Christian view of reality, there is a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. Reflection on this could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who are different from us. It means that they cannot act in that we cannot act in violence and oppression toward our opponents, but must love them and welcome them. If this is true, if you're going to sing uh, God's praises and invite the nations to praise with you, then this needs to be you, actually. You need to welcome those around you. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, uh, that, I that if this is true, uh, if this really is uh, a God who is so full of the most tremendous love that he's worth inviting everyone else around you to praise with him, then you need to sing, actually. you just got to get about the business of singing, right? Uh, it's one of the weird things, I don't know, uh, again, if you're here for the first time tonight, maybe it's a weird thing that we've been singing some songs already, we're going to sing some more songs too. Christians do a lot of singing, we always have. Uh, the reason is that, that singing expresses from the depth of your soul something that is true, something that you believe. I don't know about you, it's different for different people, but the times that I feel most connected to God actually when I'm singing with his people quite often. Uh, singing is this beautiful thing where your mind and your soul and your body are all lined up in the same way. They're all involved in one action together. Uh, and when we put that to uh, the work of praising God, uh, then it's a really, really beautiful thing. Sing. If you know this love of the Lord Jesus, then sing together. Sing with his people. Sing his praises. But there's something else about this singing that Psalm 117 shows to us as well, right? Uh, this is a very, very short psalm, but it's to be sung in Israel's worship, right? 
what ancient Israel would have done in the temple, the analogous in some ways to what we do uh, week, week in, week out on a Sunday as we gather in Jesus' name, to sing songs of worship and praise together. And it's that singing of the song, right, that actually is the invitation to the nations. Somehow they see and hear this singing, this, uh, this worship, this praise of God, and that's their invitation to go, I want in on that. That's what it looks like to be someone who's given over to this God of love. Uh, John Dixon, a uh, theologian and writer, um, very helpfully uh, talks about the role that this kind of singing actually has in extending our welcome and invitation to others around us in all their difference. Uh, he writes this, Through public praise, we announce God's mercy and power to those who overhear us. And so our songs, our creeds, our prayers, our sermons, our testimonies, perhaps even the weekly notices, are all announcements of the wonders of God. As such, they not only inspire the regulars, they can also help visitors realize what believing in Christ is all about. Because this is what it's all about in the end, to give yourself over to joyful praise of the one who has loved you to death in the Lord Jesus. That's what being a Christian is all about. That's what we invite others to, not to lose themselves, but to actually find themselves in him. And so, by way of concluding tonight, I wonder if, uh, if maybe this is a psalm that you should memorize, actually. Um, you know, people talk all the time, you've heard it, I'm sure, about how good it is to memorize parts of the Bible. I think that's really true. Uh, it can also be really hard. But here's a short one for you, right? Psalm 117, two verses. You can do that for sure. Because this is the heart of it, really. This is what it's all about. To praise the Lord, all you nations, to extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That was on your lips and in your hearts every day. That would just be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? For you to have that as the lens through which you view your life for you to keep reminding yourself of God's love and goodness to you in Jesus. We're going to do exactly that in just a moment, actually. We're going to sing uh, a song, The One Who Saves, uh, about having found our hope and our peace in Jesus, about finding our rest in the one who has loved us, the one whose love is forever. It never runs out, it never gets old. He's on for you through thick and thin, despite all the times that you actually go, ah, you know what, I can't be bothered doing what I know God wants wants me to do. He's on for you anyway. His love endures. So we're going to stand and sing his praises now.